Section nine of chapter twenty two of a history of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jen Raimundo. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter twenty two. Section nine. On the sixteenth of April, the king closed the session with a speech, in which he returned warm and well-merited thanks to the houses for the firmness and wisdom which had rescued the nation from commercial and financial difficulties unprecedented in our history. Before he set out for the continent, he conferred some new honors and made some new ministerial arrangements. Every member of the Whig junto was distinguished by some conspicuous mark of royal favor. Summers delivered up the seal, of which he was keeper. He received it back again with the higher title of Chancellor, and was immediately commanded to affix it to a patent, by which he was created Baron Summers of Eversham. Russell became Earl of Offord and Viscount Barfleur. No English title had ever before been taken from a place of battle lying within a foreign territory, but the precedent then set has been repeatedly followed, and the names of St. Vincent, Trafalgar, Camperdown, and Droro are now borne by the successors of great commanders. Russell seems to have accepted his earldom, after his fashion, not only without gratitude, but grumblingly, and as if some great wrong had been done him. What was a coronet to him? He had no child to inherit it. The only distinction which he should have prized was the garter, and the garter had been given to Portland. Of course, such things were for the Dutch, and it was strange presumption in an Englishman, though he might have won a victory which had saved the state, to expect that his pretensions would be considered till all the miniers about the palace had been served. Wharton, still retaining his place of comptroller of the household, obtained the lucrative office of Chief Justice in Eyre, south of Trent, and his brother, Godwin Wharton, was made a Lord of the Admiralty. Though the resignation of Godolphin had been accepted in October, no new commission of treasury was issued till after the prorogation. Who should be first commissioner was a question long and fiercely disputed, for Montague's faults had made him many enemies, and his merits many more. Dull formalists sneered at him as a wit and poet, who, no doubt, showed quick parts in debate, but who had already been raised far higher than his services merited or than his brain would bear. It would be absurd to play such a young coxcomb, merely because he could talk fluently and cleverly, in an office on which the well-being of the kingdom depended. Surely Sir Stephen Fox was, of all the lords of the treasury, the fittest to be at the head of the board. He was an elderly man, grave, experienced, exact, laborious, and he had never made a verse in his life. The king hesitated during a considerable time between the two candidates. But time was all in Montague's favour, for, from the first to the last day of the session, his fame was constantly rising. The voice of the House of Commons and of the city loudly designated him as pre-eminently qualified to be the chief minister of finance. At length Sir Stephen Fox withdrew from the competition, though not with a very good grace. He wished it to be notified in the London Gazette that the place of First Lord had been offered to him, and declined by him. Such a notification would have been an affront to Montague, and Montague, flushed with prosperity and glory, was not in a mood to put up with affronts. The dispute was compromised. Montague became First Lord of the Treasury, and the vacant seat at the board was filled by Sir Thomas Littleton, one of the ablest and most consistent Whigs in the House of Commons. But, from tenderness to Fox, these promotions were not announced in the Gazette. Dorset resigned the office of Chamberlain, but not in ill-humour, and retired loaded with marks of royal favour. He was succeeded by Sunderland, who was appointed one of the Lord's Justices, not without much murmuring from various quarters. To the Tories, Sunderland was an object of unmixed detestation. 
Some of the Whig leaders had been unable to resist his insinuating address, and others were grateful for the services which he had lately rendered to the party. But the leaders could not restrain their followers. Plain men, who were zealous for civil liberty and for the Protestant religion, who were beyond the range of Sutherland's irresistible fascination, and who knew that he had state in the High Commission, concurred in the Declaration of Indulgence, borne witness against the seven bishops, and received the host from a popish priest, could not, without indignation and shame, see him standing, with the staff in his hand, close to the throne. Still more monstrous was it that such a man should be entrusted with the administration of the government during the absence of the sovereign. William did not understand these feelings. Sunderland was able, he was useful, he was unprincipled indeed, but so were all the English politicians of the generation which had learned, under the sullen tyranny of the saints, to disbelieve in virtue, and which had, during the wild jubilee of the Restoration, been utterly dissolved in vice. He was a fair specimen of his class, a little worse, perhaps, than Leeds or Godolphin, and about as bad as Russell or Marlborough. Why he was to be hunted from the herd the king could not imagine. Notwithstanding the discontent which was caused by Sunderland's elevation, England was, during the summer, perfectly quiet and in excellent temper. All but the fanatical Jacobites were elated by the rapid revival of trade and by the near prospect of peace. Nor were Ireland and Scotland less tranquil. In Ireland nothing deserving to be minutely related had taken place since Sidney had ceased to be Lord Lieutenant. The government had suffered the colonists to domineer unchecked over the native population, and the colonists had in turn been profoundly obsequious to the government. The proceedings of the local legislator which sate at Dublin had been in no respect more important or more interesting than the proceedings of the Assembly of Barbados. Perhaps the most momentous event in the parliamentary history of Ireland at this time was a dispute between the two houses which was caused by a collision between the coach of the Speaker and the coach of the Chancellor. There were indeed factions, but factions which sprang merely from personal pretensions and animosities. The names of Whig and Tory had been carried across St. George's Channel, but had in the passage lost all their meaning. A man who was called a Tory at Dublin would have passed at Westminster for as staunch a Whig as Horton. The highest churchmen in Ireland abhorred and dreaded popery so much that they were disposed to consider every Protestant as a brother. They remembered the tyranny of James, the robberies, the burnings, the confiscations, the brass money, the act of attainder, with bitter resentment. They honoured William as their deliverer and preserver. Nay, they could not help feeling a certain respect even for the memory of Cromwell, for, whatever else he might have been, he had been the champion and the avenger of their race. Between the divisions of England, therefore, and the divisions of Ireland, there was scarcely anything in common. In England there were two parties, of the same race and religion, contending with each other. In Ireland there were two castes, of different races and religions, one trampling on the other. Scotland, too, was quiet. The harvest of the last year had indeed been scanty, and there was consequently much suffering. But the spirit of the nation was buoyed up by wild hopes, destined to end in cruel disappointment. A magnificent daydream of wealth and empire so completely occupied the minds of men that they hardly felt the present distress. How that dream originated, and by how terrible an awakening it was broken, will be related hereafter. In the autumn of 1696 the estates of Scotland met at Edinburgh. The attendance was thin, and the session lasted only five weeks. A supply amounting to little more than a hundred thousand pounds sterling was voted. Two acts for the securing of the government were passed. One of those acts required all persons in public trust to sign an association similar to the association which had been so generally subscribed in the south of the island. The other act provided that the Parliament of Scotland should not be dissolved by the death of the king. 
but by far the most important event of this short session was the passing of the act for the settling of schools by this memorable law it was in the scotch phrase statuted and ordained that every parish in the realm should provide a commodious schoolhouse and should pay a moderate stipend to a schoolmaster the effect could not be immediately felt but before one generation had passed away it began to be evident that the common people of scotland were superior in intelligence to the common people of any other country in europe to whatever land the scotchman might wander to whatever calling he might betake himself in america or in india in trade or in war the advantage which he derived from his early training raised him above his competitors if he was taken into a warehouse as a porter he soon became foreman if he enlisted in the army he soon became a sergeant scotland meanwhile in spite of the barrenness of her soil and the severity of her climate made such progress in agriculture in manufactures in commerce in letters in science in all that constitutes civilization as the old world has never seen equalled and as even the new world has scarcely seen surpassed this wonderful change is to be attributed not indeed solely but principally to the national system of education but to the men by whom that system was established posterity owes no gratitude they knew not what they were doing they were the unconscious instruments of enlightening the understandings and humanizing the hearts of millions but their own understandings were as dark and their own hearts as obdurate as those of the familiars of the inquisition at lisbon in the very month in which the act for the settling of schools was touched with the sceptre the rulers of the church and state in scotland began to carry on with vigor two persecutions worthy of the tenth century a persecution of witches and a persecution of infidels a crowd of wretches guilty only of being old and miserable were accused of trafficking with the devil the privy council was not ashamed to issue a commission for the trial of twenty-two of these poor creatures the shops of the booksellers of edinburgh were strictly searched for heretical works impious books among which the sages of the presbytery ranked thomas burnett's sacred theory of the earth were strictly suppressed but the destruction of mere paper and sheepskin would not satisfy the bigots their hatred required victims who could feel, and was not appeased till they had perpetrated a crime such as never since polluted the island. A student of eighteen, named Thomas Ackenhead, whose habits were studious and whose morals were irreproachable, had, in the course of his reading, met with some of the ordinary arguments against the Bible. He fancied that he had lighted on a mine of wisdom which had been hidden from the rest of mankind, and with a conceit from which half-educated lads of quick parts are seldom free, proclaimed his discoveries to four or five of his companions. Trinity and unity, he said, was as much a contradiction as a square circle. Ezra was the author of the Pentateuch. The Apocalypse was an allegorical book about the philosopher's stone. Moses had learned magic in Egypt. Christianity was a delusion which would not last till the year 1800. For this wild talk, of which, in all probability, he would himself have been ashamed long before he was five-and-twenty, he was prosecuted by the Lord Advocate. The Lord Advocate was that James Stuart who had been so often a Whig and so often a Jacobite that it is difficult to keep an account of his apostasies. He was now a Whig for the third, if not for the fourth time. Ackenhead might undoubtedly have been, by the law of Scotland, punished with imprisonment till he should retract his errors and do penance before the congregation of his parish, and every man of sense and humanity would have thought this a sufficient punishment for the prate of a forward boy. But Stuart, as cruel as he was base, called for blood. There was among the Scottish statutes one which made it a capital crime to revile or curse the supreme being or any person of the Trinity. Nothing that Ackenhead had said could, without the most violent straining, be brought within the scope of this statute. But the Lord Advocate exerted all his subtlety. 
The poor youth at the bar had no counsel. He was altogether unable to do justice to his own cause. He was convicted, and sentenced to be hanged and buried at the foot of the gallows. It was in vain that he with tears abjured his errors and begged piteously for mercy. Some of those who saw him in his dungeon believed that his recantation was sincere. And indeed it is by no means improbable that in him, as in many other pretenders to philosophy who imagine that they have completely emancipated themselves from the religion of their childhood, the near prospect of death may have produced an entire change of sentiment. He petitioned the Privy Council that, if his life could not be spared, he might be allowed a short respite to make his peace with the God whom he had offended. Some of the councillors were for granting this small indulgence. Others thought that it ought not to be granted unless the ministers of Edinburgh would intercede. The two parties were evenly balanced, and the question was decided against the prisoner by the casting vote of the Chancellor. The Chancellor was a man who has been often mentioned in the course of this history, and never mentioned with honour. He was that Sir Patrick Hume, whose disputations and factious temper had brought ruin on the expedition of Argyle, and had caused not a little annoyance to the government of William. In the club which had braved the king and domineered over the parliament, there had been no more noisy republican. But a title and a place had produced a wonderful conversion. Sir Patrick was now Lord Polworth. He had the custody of the great seal of Scotland. He presided in the privy council. And thus he had it in his power to do the worst action of his bad life. It remained to be seen how the clergy of Edinburgh would act. That divines should be deaf to the entreaties of a penitent who asks, not for pardon, but for a little more time to receive their instructions and to pray to heaven for the mercy which cannot be extended to him on earth, seems almost incredible. Yet so it was. The ministers demanded, not only for the poor boy's death, but his speedy death, though it should be his eternal death. Even from their pulpits they cried out for cutting him off. It is probable that their real reason for refusing him a respite of a few days was their apprehension that the circumstance of his case might be reported at Kensington, and that the king, who, while reciting the coronation oath, had declared from the throne that he would not be a persecutor, might send down positive orders that the sentence should not be executed. Akenhead was hanged between Edinburgh and Leith. He professed deep repentance, and suffered with the Bible in his hand. The people of Edinburgh, though assuredly not disposed to think lightly of his offence, were moved to compassion by his youth, by his penitence, and by the cruel haste with which he was hurried out of the world. It seems that there was some apprehension of a rescue, for a strong body of fusiliers was under arms to support the civil power. The preachers who were the boy's murderers crowded round him at the gallows, and while he was struggling in the last agony, insulted heaven with prayers more blasphemous than anything he had ever uttered. Woodrow has told no blacker story of Dundee. On the whole, the British islands had not, during ten years, been so free from internal troubles as when William, at the close of April 1697, set out for the continent. The war in the Netherlands was a little, and but a little, less languid than in the preceding year. The French generals opened the campaign by taking the small town of Aeth. They then meditated a far more important quest. They made a sudden push for Brussels, and would probably have succeeded in their design but for the activity of William. He was encamped on ground which lies within sight of the line of Waterloo, when he received, late in the evening, intelligence that the capital of the Netherlands was in danger. He instantly put his forces in motion, marched all night, and, having traversed the field destined to acquire, a hundred and eighteen years later, a terrible renown, and threaded the long defiles of the forest of Soignier, he was at ten in the morning on the spot from which Brussels had been bombarded two years before, and would, if he had been only three hours later, have been bombarded again. 
Here he surrounded himself with entrenchments which the enemy did not venture to attack. This was the most important military event which, during that summer, took place in the Low Countries. In both camps there was an unwillingness to run any great risk on the eve of a general pacification. Lewis had, early in the spring, for the first time during his long reign, spontaneously offered equitable and honourable conditions to his foes. He had declared himself willing to relinquish the conquests which he had made in the course of the war, to cede Lorraine to its own duke, to give back Luxembourg to Spain, to give back Strasbourg to the empire, and to acknowledge the existing government of England. End of section 9. Recording by Genre Mundo.